Hello and welcome to episode 184 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And Ian, welcome to what is sure to be at least our 184th best episode yet. I firmly believe we can get this episode in the top 100. We can do it. Firmly believe. And the only reason I say that is because we have a great interview with Michael Carrolls later in the show, who is a dispatcher for a large legacy airline somewhere in the United States. And we have a great conversation with him about what it is to be a dispatcher and some of the things that get him going into work in the morning and keep him up at night. So stick around for that later in the show. We begin the show with a bunch of FAA centric news that deals with rules about flight attendants, some letters that the FAA has sent to Boeing, and some good news for Malaysia. And we'll go with the flight attendants first. So the new rule that the FAA has, has finally finally finalized, I guess is a, a way of way to saying put it. it. Yep. Yes. They have now finalized rules that are based on the law Congress passed in 2018 it was not put into effect. There were two public comment periods in 2019 and 2021. And finally, they have published the final rule, which will change the rest periods for flight attendants, increasing that rest period to 10 hours. It was previously at nine, and then it was able to be modified slightly downward, depending on the situation. This creates a hard and fast rule for 10 hours of rest in between shifts. So this puts the flight attendants now in line with pilots across the board within the United States. That's good news. As we all know, flight attendants are there primarily for the safety of uh, the passengers on board. So they should probably have as much rest as anyone else working on that aircraft. This is not something that comes as a surprise to the airline industry. Like we said, this was first legislated in 2018 and is only finally being enacted now. And most airlines, I'm, I'm sure at least one of which we know is Delta, who is not a unionized airline, but wanted to keep their flight attendants happy, already had this rule in effect. And I'm sure several, if not all the major airlines have already moved to 10 hours. So when this rule does actually take effect, there should really not be any operational surprises or hiccups. But I, I guess theoretically, at some point down the line, there could be some minor delays due to crew rest being now or flight attendant rest being mandated at 10 hours, and they're not able to drop that down under any circumstance in this point. Yeah. So nothing that the airlines are surprised about at this point. But to Jason's point, yeah, when we're we're waiting for your crew, that could come later down the line because there's now an, an extra hour there built in. But by then, hopefully everything that'll be accounted for in airline scheduling as well. Good news, certainly for flight attendants. And I think across the board, good news, having a crew that's more well-rested, whether they're on the flight deck or in the cabin. Especially, I just like dealing with, with people who have had sleep. Especially now, since airlines have been pushing their, their aircraft and personnel to the absolute limits, I'm sure everyone will be happy to have a little bit extra sleep. Absolutely. Let's move now to the letters that the FAA has sent Boeing, which is to say the FAA is once again concerned with Boeing's actions 
regarding the 737 MAX, this time in turn for the certification of the 737 MAX 10. The FAA sent a letter to Boeing saying they need to submit all of their safety system analyses before the FAA can even look at these things. And they take a long time to look at, and boy, is the clock ticking. So the reporting that we've seen from folks like John Ostra at the Air Current, other reporters at Reuters, including David Shepperson, is basically that summer 2023 now seems like a reasonable period for the expectation that the 737 MAX 10 will be certified. This would pose a problem for Boeing, or in the current scheme of things, does pose a problem for Boeing, because by the end of December, if the aircraft isn't certified, they need to include a crew alerting system, which the 737 does not have. Now, that's based on a law that was passed two years ago. Last week, Senator Roger Wicker, the top Republican who is on the Senate Commerce Committee and has been involved with certification efforts and writing the regulations and laws that govern these things, submitted an amendment proposing extending the deadline for Boeing to win approval until September of 2024. Wicker wants to attach that amendment to the annual defense spending bill, which is basically if it gets attached to the defense spending bill, it'll pass because no one wants to vote against defense spending in a must-pass bill. Just stick it full of some pork and it will get through. Yeah. So so the idea is to, to get this in and then let Boeing certify the aircraft based on the old rules rather than the rules that were passed two years ago in order as Congress said, to increase the safety of the aircraft. Boeing has always said that the 737 MAX without the crew alerting system is safe. None of the other models of the 737 have them. And they say adding this to specifically just the MAX 10 would cause confusion amongst the crew. So at least this gets us beyond the rhetoric that we were hearing from Boeing over this past summer that if they don't get an exception, if they're not certifying this aircraft by the end of the year, they just won't build or they won't they, they will scrap the 73 MAX 7 and 10 program. That was never going to happen, but at least we seem to be moving in the direction of extending the period of, I guess, eligible certification for this aircraft. But I really hope they meet whatever the next deadline would be. I I don't know if we actually know if this is exempting these particular aircraft or extending the deadline for any aircraft, but whatever it is, I really hope Boeing can meet whatever is set for them. The interesting thing about the, oh, we'll just scrap the program, I don't think anyone ever took that seriously, especially since they started going out and getting new orders for the MAX 10. Like significant Multiple number of orders. orders from major airlines yeah. like Delta. And so I think they they tried that. Everyone who is anyone was like, okay, sure, that was a bad no one believes you. So they're like, okay, let's go the other route. Let's get so many orders that we have to build the plane and then Congress has to listen to us, which I think was a more likely- That's a much more strong argument. Much more. As far as you know, Boeing's concerned, I think that was much more likely in the long run. So I, I think it was kind of an unforced error to say, well, we're not going to build the plane. I think the tack that they're taking now is, is 
a much more convincing argument as far as congressional movement is concerned. So, I mean, we'll, we'll see how things go. My take on it is that Wicker's amendment will pass as part of the defense bill or something else. Boeing will have enough time to certify the aircraft post 2022 into 2023. And then you'll see airlines starting to take delivery near the end of 2023 for the 737 MAX 10. Yeah. So that's what I think is going to happen. Any airline that is on the waiting list for these aircraft, they will be missing the the precious summer 2023 season, unfortunately, where they would want these aircraft the most. So yeah, commercially speaking, that's yeah, maybe deal. summer 2024, you'll, you'll get your first flight on one of these on some airline out there. Do we know who would get the first one? Is it United? Yeah, I think so. I think their Max 10, the first Max 10 or they're first couple painted, Max 10 right? are painted and ready to yeah. go. Yeah. They're, they're waiting. They're waiting. Come on. <laughs> they got to retire those 757s sometime. Eventually, one day. The FAA upgraded Malaysia's safety rating. Hey. So that's great news for Malaysia. They've returned to category one status, which means that they now comply with all of the ICAO standards. They are authorized to serve the United States, enter into code share agreements with US carriers without limitation, and they can begin new routes. So hopefully, that means that we see some increased service from Malaysia in the near future. I think that would be a great thing. Yeah. I'm not sure this actually changes anything because Malaysia would still have been able to operate to the US on whatever existing routes it had, but it it didn't have any. I think they last served... LAX quite a while ago, but I don't think they had any active routes to the US right now. So while it doesn't really change anything, if any airline in Malaysia wants to start operating to the US, now they can. Great. Now they can. Yeah. Sadly, Mexico remains at a category two rating, so they cannot add more service, even though certainly airlines in Mexico would want to at the moment. Yeah. That one stuck around for quite a bit longer than I think anyone thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've done all of the FAA stuff. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll chat with Michael Carrolls about what it's like to be a dispatcher at a large US airline. And interestingly, we, we get into some of the difference between being a dispatcher in the US and how airlines outside the US work at a, a similar level. And that was a surprising and very interesting portion of the conversation. So stick around for that. We will be back in just a moment. Welcome back. We are now joined as long promised. It took us a minute or two to get here, but but we finally did. Michael Carrolls is a dispatcher for a major US legacy carrier. I'm sure that it will take a very, very long time for folks to really dig in and, and figure out which airline after the conversation. But I have faith in them that, that somebody will figure it out. But Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We're really thrilled to have you on the show. I'm really glad to be here and you know I'm really glad we're, we're finally able to get this put together you know it, you're bringing three people together in three schedules is always a always the fun part of podcasting. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad we made it work and and I'm glad you're here. Over the past couple of weeks we've asked people both listening to the podcast and and in our weekly newsletter we we sent out a call for questions and we got a few good questions but we also got some questions from folks who asked questions that Jason and I would never ask of a dispatcher because those aren't questions for a dispatcher and then that got me thinking well these folks could stand to get a bit from an aircraft dispatcher on what an aircraft dispatcher does so let's start there with what is your job <laughs> what's my job <laughs> 
<laughs> so an aircraft dispatcher is a certificated airman under the FAA. The basic role of the dispatcher is to plan all of the flights for their air carrier that they get assigned to during the day uh, and during their shift. And they plan the flight. They tell the crew what the origin is, what the destination is. So this is flight one, two, three from Chicago to Denver. And from Chicago to Denver, they then look at the weather. Is what's the weather going to be like in Denver? Is an alternate going to be required for that? If yes, then what alternate is it going to be and how much fuel is it going to take to get there? The dispatcher works on the route of flight. You know, you got your origin, you got your destination, but how are you going to get there? That's the dispatcher picks the route of flight with the mindset of economics, the mindset of turbulence avoidance and other weather avoidance. The goal of any company is to move our flights in the most economical way, but there are situations like turbulence and thunderstorms or any other weather phenomena that's in our way that we have to then, you know, fly around and avoid that. Dispatchers have to have a versed knowledge in the aircraft systems. The aircraft can be, quote, dispatched with things broken on it under a maintenance carryover under the minimum equipment list. So we have to make sure our the airplane that we're using is legal for that route of flight we're going to be putting on for that flight. And then it doesn't end there. So finally, when you you get done all of that, you read your notams, you read your weather, you got a route of flight, you have the correct payload for passengers and cargo on board, and you have a good fuel number, you hit the release button. But that doesn't end there for a dispatcher. For the dispatcher, we sit there and we watch the flight from origin to destination, and then we're required to update the flight crew of any changes to the plan that they signed for at the gate with their release. Changes in weather, changes in turbulence, any pilot reports that we get along the way that might be effective to their flight, we give them a heads up about it. On Sundays, it's usually, hey, what's the score of the football game? in fall. But, you know, it's constant communication with the flight crew. If something happens on that flight, i.e. if you have a customer medical, a customer issue, or a mechanical issue, the pilots are going to reach out to the dispatcher first on the ground, and then we are going to help troubleshoot any of the issues along the way. So, that's the basic gist of the aircraft dispatcher as it is. Matt, that is quite a lot of responsibility. And so for a a larger airline like you work at, which again, we won't mention specifically, but people will figure out probably, how many flights on a shift would you be assigned? And if it's 1, 2, 10, 15, how many dispatchers are there and how do you divvy up the workload? Is it like you'll take the Northeast, you'll take the Southwest, and I'll take Canada or something like that? <laughs> so my airline, we have, I think we're about 2,800 to 3,600 flights a day, somewhere in there based on the day and the season. A dispatcher is limited by the regulations to a 10-hour shift at our shop. We work either nine hours or 10 hours on a dispatch desk. 
domestically on the domestic side of the world, they'll be working anywhere between 35 to, I'd go about 45 flights in the 10 hour shift. And over on the international side, the high side is going to be in about the 20 to 25, and that's going to be mainly the Latin America, Caribbean flights. Your transoceanic dispatchers are going to be in the anywhere between five and, you know, maybe, maybe up to 10 flights on a shift. Their workload is a lot less, mainly because it's farther, it's a longer route, but then you have, uh, you know, ETOPS and all of that stuff that you have to put in there. The workload for international flight plan is more than a domestic flight plan. So you also asked, okay, how do we divvy it up? At my airline, it's by region. You work a region of flights. So you could be working, you know, you could be working transcons. You're working JFK, San Francisco, JFK, LA, throw some San Diego, some Vegas in there, but you got Kennedy to you know, Vegas, San Diego, LA, and that would be your world. Your world is the entire country. And is that for like a particular day or do you repeat the same kind of like territory that you get familiar with? So line holders or desk holders will work the same flights every single day that they're working. You know, that's kind of their desk. You know, this is what they become very specialized in, in those flights. Now, we also have relief dispatchers, which work the desk of the dispatchers when they're on vacation, because unlike most jobs, someone has to do your job for you when you're on vacation. You can't, you know, just come back from your vacation and have a pile of flights to work up. That that doesn't work out very well for many people. Sorry, we can't fly to Seattle this week because Jim's on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We've had some management try to suggest that before, but we quickly told them, yeah, that doesn't work that way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so there's that region, but your region can be small. You could be working out of Atlanta tobacco road airports. The maybe Dulles is the furthest north you go, but you have Greensboro, Richmond, Charlotte, and maybe Savannah. And now your world is Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. It's much more compressed. Internationally, we break things out by ocean. We have a North Atlantic quad. We have a Pacific quad, a quad being four or five dispatchers all in a row that are working the same region. So you kind of have some resource management back and forth uh, with each other and some support. And, you know, have a, like you said, Latin America, we'll have an Atlantic, we'll have a Pacific, and then, you know, we'll have Africa. And Africa is kind of a pseudo North America desk. It's a unique desk. Can you tell us what you typically work on without giving away the actual secret? (laughs) So... I have moved on from the actual guy sending flight plans, and now I work more in the ops management side of the office in the dispatch profession. And what I work on when I work the floor is I work a fleet of airplanes, and I make the customer delay, cancel, swap airplanes, do a stuff, a bunch of stuff in the background to make sure we stay on time roll. Now, that's an important job too. And I just last week actually had, I was flying JFK to Seattle and we had on Delta's 321 Neos, they had some bad 
luck with a few of their aircraft and they had to swap a few out. And I was very thankful that instead of just canceling my flight and say, sorry, you're going through, I don't know, Denver now, they were able to swap it out to a 739 instead of the 321. So that was probably took a fair bit of reconfiguring some flight schedules. And I was very happy someone was able to do that. Could have been you, could have been someone else. I don't know. Yeah, it it could have been. It's one of those things, especially when you talk about the operation on the fleet side of things. The fleet operations manager is supposed to really, their whole goal is to make sure there's a pilot crew, a flight attendant crew, and an airplane at the gate with the marketing schedule as it got published. If one of those three components is not there on time, we either have to swap, move airplanes and equipment around to make sure we have an airplane that's there on time. We need to reroute crews to make sure it's there for an on-time departure. Or we have to delay, which is pretty much usually our first and, and best option for you know recovering any situation like that. And if delay doesn't work and you still aren't going to get a piece to the puzzle that you need, well, then cancellation is the pretty much our last resort of what we're going to do. How computerized are things these days as far as using either you know planning software or, or things like that to make either make the decisions or, or help make the decisions? How much of that is built in and computerized versus how much of it is people sitting down and figuring out, okay, what are we going to do here? It's a good mix between the both. Our flight planning system is completely computerized. A dispatcher sits down, pulls up the flight. They seize the the amount of payload that's going to be on there. They hit the compute button. The dispatcher isn't sitting there with a calculator adding up the fuel to get the total fuel bill. Everything is done and automated there. So that's all computerized there. They still need to do the manual, hey, let's look up to see what these different MELs are. I have to manually go and take a look at the weather. I have to, I'm still using a computer program to read the weather and the notums, but it's it's a manual reading of the weather and the notums to do it. There's no machine learning that we have yet that will read weather and notums for us and do any sort of critical thinking for a dispatcher. We don't have a, a machine learning system based on it on the dispatch side. And that's pretty much the same on the operations management side. We have a lot of tools that gives us a lot of good information and a lot of good analytics about customers and about connections and about high value customers and and value scores for different flights that we can help make a decision. But in the end, it's it's the human sitting at the computer that's taking all the information in to go ahead and actually make a decision. Now, we're working towards a more machine learning, machine analytics type of operation, but we're, we're not there yet. You mentioned weather, and we always talk about you know weather being a very both predicted and still yet unpredictable. And one of the questions we got from a podcast listener was about kind of the dealing with weather that hasn't happened yet. So the, their question was, how do you dispatch forecasted weather where there's thunderstorms that could pop up? And say you're dispatching a transcon flight from San Francisco to New York, and halfway through the flight, you're expected to see 
thunderstorms, but they haven't materialized yet. So you don't know exactly which way you're going to need to go. How do you deal with that? So there's a couple of ways we can do this. So with your specific example, line of thunderstorms that are going to pop up, we have a bunch of tools that we can use to A, know that the thunderstorms will pop up and given their timing that they are going to pop up. We have our own in-house meteorology department that writes our own forecasts and does a lot of our weather charts for us. And then they issue forecast areas of, in this case, thunderstorms of convection. And they give a time that it is going to be, you know, hey, we expect it to pop up at this time. There's also some tools that the dispatcher use from MIT's Lincoln Labs. That's some really, really good, high-quality forecasting on there that is used pretty much throughout the industry, both at the airlines and at the, at the FAA level, to see what kind of forecasted impact there is going to be from that weather. And the, you know, then you just use other forecasts, uh, written forecasts and that along the way, for you get, a, you get a good general understanding of where the weather is going to be popping up. It's definitely a little bit more sophisticated than what they show on the Weather Channel. <laughs> but now you see the, the future high-res radar guesses from the Weather Channel uh, of how's this weather going to move through or here's how it's going to build. And you even see it on your local news. A lot of it's the same. We see where the weather is going to be, and then we just have to manipulate our route to either avoid that area or, you know, throw on some extra fuel to make sure that we can avoid that that area. But I would say that most of the time, if we know a line of thunderstorms is going to pop up, and by the time we're going to be there, it's going to, it's going to be there, we will route around it just like it was actually there. So, thunderstorms is one of the most harder things for us to route around, especially summertime convection and all of that. There's no... There's no clear, true science of timing and all of all of that or, you know, how much coverage is the line going to be? Is it going to be a broken line or is it going to be a solid wall of thunder Thunder, in, that's going to be there? Are we going to be able to get through it or not? There's, It's not quite that good of a science yet. Just, you know, just going back from what's been going on this last week, you know, here in, you know, October of 2022 – Hurricane Ian came through the United States over the last week. For me, in, in the operations in the airline world, hurricanes and blizzards are so much more preferred weather to forecast and avoid because they're much more predictable and they're slow moving. And you can you have time to get a good plan in place, action that plan, and then you also know when you're going to be able to recover and start operating again once the storm moves through. That's funny that you would actually, and I totally understand it, that you'd prefer a more widespread kind of devastating storm, but a little like a summer pop-up storm in New York. You don't know if it's going to ruin United's Day at Newark or if it's going to ruin American's Day at JFK since it's that localized. So it is pretty funny that a wider more widespread storm is actually just easier to deal with than a little pop-up thunderstorm in New York. That's fascinating. No, absolutely. I, I would take a hurricane over a New York swap event any day. We don't want hurricanes ever. And, you know, we want to run our, run our flights. But like from the operational side of things, 
I'll take the slow moving storms better. You know, you talk about pop-up storms, you know, you just, one cell pops up over LaGuardia, you know. That, that's it. That's it. For that's <laughs> it for that airport. But, you know, Kennedy's running fine and Newark's running fine. Or, you know, you get one thunderstorm that pops up just north of Philly and it cuts off one of the arrivals to the New York metros. And, you know, now you have, say, LaGuardia and Newark are running fine, but Kennedy's blocked and is holding. And now you're scattering airplanes and diverting because there's no other place to go. But everyone else going to the other airports are just flying right by you and see you later. (laughs) So is weather the hardest part of your job? I would say weather is the most impactful part of the airline operation, and it definitely is the largest influence of workload at an airline. And very few airlines actually have a dedicated weather staff employed, I think, too. You, you happen to work at one that does, but if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's actually exceptionally rare. I think most of the majors have access to their own meteorologist or they have a contract with people that are meteorologists that work in their operations center. But for us, they're actually airline employees. They have the same skin in the game in it as we do. They're not forecasting for, you know, a bunch of other people or throwing out just broad forecasts. They're they're definitely airline specific forecasts and you know, they are a great team that we work with. Yeah. And speaking of rare, dispatchers overall, we talked a little about this before we hit the record button. The US airlines are actually in a class of their own when it comes to dispatching, since we talked a little about that. So most airlines out in Europe, Asia, they don't actually have dispatchers. Can you tell us a little bit about why that might be or, or how they operate SANS dispatching? I can talk a little bit about it. So why do the US have dispatchers? And that just because it's baked into the the federal aviation regulations. It's in there as in part 121 that, you know, there has to be a dispatcher sitting on the ground while the flights are going out and flying and doing all the pre-flight planning. If you think about it from our aspect in the United States, you have someone that has the same knowledge as an airline captain. The dispatcher written exam is pretty much exactly the same as the ATP written exam, minus, I think, a few questions and otherwise, they're basically identical. You have a certified airman who understands the exact same knowledge as as the pilot does, but we stay on the ground and we do all the the quote paperwork and the routing or routing stuff for that flight crew. I, I think if you gave a pilot and made them in the United States have to flight plan their flight like a dispatcher does for them your crew utilization would be incredibly low because they'd be spending two or three hours in between flights planning the next flight. We don't have that time. You know, airplane comes in, say the crew is, you know, turning with the airplane to head back out. That's a 30 to 90 minute ground time. They don't have that time to sit and prepare to this level that we do for them. We prepare the documents and all of the information for them, so they just have to read the importance part. So that's how we do it in the United States. 
Canada has a similar model, and I believe Australia has a similar model, but that's it. The rest of the world doesn't operate on a model that's similar. There's a new flight planning system out there that's mainly used in Europe that uses the machine analytics to read the weather notums, and it goes through and looks looks at you know, looks being in air quotes, looks at the the weather and the convection and the thunderstorms in areas that are closed. And it it auto flight plans for those carriers based on the payload. And, you know, it's a computer that's doing it. And they might have one person there for their whole operation that just manages the exceptions if something, you know, if the computer can't handle it. I don't want to say one way is better than the other way because there's no, yes, this is the best way or no, this is the best way. Everyone seems to be doing it and everyone gets it done in the way. So, you know, it always goes through and we always get our customers to where they want to go in a safe manner. It's just a different way of doing things. I mean, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that that U.S. legacy carriers and a few other U.S. carriers are just operating a much greater volume of flights per day. I think it's definitely a much greater volume of flights per day. And I also think it's just the fact that when the aviation regulations were written, the aircraft dispatcher was almost a had a combined role as also being more like the air traffic controller because the number of airplanes in the sky were a lot lower and you were actually taking position reports over the radio and they were literally moving little pegs of airplanes across a big map on the table and that's how they flight followed and you'd be able to see other airlines and all of that the whole dispatching thing came around same thing with the air traffic control thing well, when two airliners came together over the Grand Canyon, and that that's where this whole thing started. Basically, everything that has ever come out of the airline industry, especially in the United States, came about because something terrible happened, and then they figured out, okay, let's figure out a way to make it make it safer. And I knew about the kind of the genesis of the modern air traffic control system, but I didn't realize that that it had such a, a dispatcher focused portion as well. I have two questions for you since I know we're running out of time. What's your favorite part about being a dispatcher and what's your least favorite part? Is there anything you look forward to at the beginning of the day and anything you really, really don't want to do but still have to do? (laughs) I like the complexity of the job and how it changes day to day. You know, you'll go in and it changes season to season. I love working the operation in the operation floor in October, late September, October, this is great. This is great weather. It's they're easy days at work because, you know, there's the convection isn't there. Things are cooler, big high pressure across most of the country, VFR weather everywhere. It's great. But then I also enjoy the New York swap events of trying to get airplanes into or out of New York and then dealing with the diversions and trying to take the operation of the airline and trying to put it back together and piece some sort of semblance of an operation out of that and put it back together. So I I, I like that challenge of it. There isn't anything that like, oh, this is is horrible. I, I don't like this about the job, but I have to do it anyway. Sometimes it's alarm clocks. Sometimes it's midnight shifts. You know, 
dispatchers are on call or in the office 24-7, 365. We always have dispatchers there. We always have an airplane in the air. It doesn't matter if it's Thanksgiving, if it's Christmas, if it's New Year's. It doesn't matter. Someone's there at work because we have airplanes flying. So I guess that would be the negative and the takeaway. The uh, bad part is, you know, having to hurry up and, you know, have Thanksgiving dinner on Saturday because you worked Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you didn't have a Thanksgiving like everyone else did. You just shifted the holiday a little bit. And then, you know, the occasional midnight shift. I, you know, when you're junior, you're straight midnights and that's four or five days of uh, midnights in a row. And yeah, it's not exactly fun. We've had Andrew Poor on the show before and before he became a dispatcher. The last time we talked to him, he had just completed his his course. And one of the things that, that he's talked about, especially working for a cargo airline, is working so many nights and continuing to do so. But he, he's just getting started in his career. I will ask one final question that comes from our, our listener, James, and he is excited and enthusiastic to become a dispatcher and was wondering if you had any advice on how to prepare and move towards becoming an, an airline dispatcher. So, some of the basic requirements for being a dispatcher is one is you have to be over the age of 23 to get your dispatch certificate and start working as a as a dispatcher. That doesn't mean you can't go to school and become a dispatcher before you're 23. I definitely fit in that camp. I had I had all of my written and my practical tests done when I was 21, and I just had to wait till I turned 23 to get my certificate. Being a dispatcher and finding a dispatch job, there are a list of schools, and I can get you the list from the FAA in for your guys' show notes. Perfect. Of where you can go through and get your dispatch training at. It's like any other airman certificate from the FAA, there's a minimum number of hours, there's a minimum number of classroom hours and subject hours that you have to go through. Unlike the pilot ratings, you don't have to go out and demonstrate how that you can practically do things in the air or in real life. But when you do have your quote check ride with the FAA, you will do a manual flight release with a with a good old E6B or a whiz wheel and a plotting chart. And that'll be the last time you actually have to use a manual computer to do a flight plan. But we go through and do it that way. Job characteristics to be a dispatcher, I would definitely say you have to be someone that handles stress and pressure relatively easily and be able to multitask and keep track of things especially in, I'll give a scenario, you have, you have a line of weather or some sort of event that is impacting one of your hub airports. And now you have five airplanes in that arrival bank coming into that hub. And now all five of them are in holding. All five of those crews are sending you a cars messages at once. And you, now you are trying to develop a plan and you're trying to communicate to each of these flights pertinent information for them, which they need to know. And now you're developing a backup plan of, hey, if we can't get into Atlanta, well, let's send this one to Birmingham. This one can go to Knoxville. This one can go up to 
Chattanooga. This one can maybe go to Huntsville because we can't send all the diversions to one airport. One, our friends in airport customer service at the airport don't like it when 25 extra airplanes show up at at their airport and they have to work them all. (laughs) It's really poor customer service because someone's going to be on the airplane for a really long time. So in a diversion event, we try to spread out the spread out the pain and put maybe three or four in a city at a time. So it's better on the customers on the airplane. It's better for our employees at the airport that we can get those airplanes turned rather quickly. So it's all of that multitasking that you have there that you have to kind of keep everything in order in your head so you can make sure it's logical and can keep things in order there. And then finally, you have to be willing to work shifts. You have to be willing to work holidays. You have to work weekends, midnights, and all of that. The best part of the job is, you know, we don't work a ton. We're not working 40 hours a week. We're working maybe 30-ish. It's four on, four off is the rotation for the 10-hour shift at my airline. So that's four days on, four days off. You take four days of vacation, and now you have four to 12 days off in a row. So it's it's really good for that. And finally, the best perk of the job is a dispatcher gets uh, jump seat privileges with their airline and other airlines because the regulations say that we have to sit and watch our flight crews fly an airplane for five hours on a route that we would normally dispatch. So each year we get a company paid vacation somewhere to go watch pilots fly the airplane, which means we have to sit in the jump seat, which means we have access to the jump seat year round. Hey, that's not a bad perk. I think that's our best perk. That would be my top perk if if I was a dispatcher, for sure. We have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I mean, I'm sure we keep going forever and ever and ever, and, and we'll have to have you back definitely to chat more. But I'm going to let you go here so that we don't keep you forever and, and that eventually you can go back to dispatching more planes. Michael Carrolls is an aircraft dispatcher for a major US legacy carrier. Email us at podcast.fi24.com if, if it was very difficult to figure out which one, and we'll go from there. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Really great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, Brahman, if, if you don't mind me throwing in a cheap plug, if you like conversation- Absolutely. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> by all means. Yes. Yes. If you, if you like conversation like this about, hopefully, usually uh, about twice a month, me and two other dispatchers get together and do a podcast called Flying in Life. Sometimes I talk about air shows. Sometimes I go to, or I usually go to Oshkosh every year and cover Oshkosh talk a a little bit about personal flying, but most of it is 121 dispatch operations on what we do and how it is we do our thing. And we get, you know, kind of geeky sometimes and get down into the weeds of things. So, and if if you want to go from from our more general conversation into that conversation, we will absolutely put a link in the show notes to their podcast, Flying and Life. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Ain't no problem. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Welcome back. I had fun talking with Michael and you should definitely check out his podcast, Flying in Life, if you want to get more into the weeds on dispatcher stuff. I've been enjoying it. I started listening to some of the episodes where they get very 
very nerdy and I'm having fun with it. And like I mentioned when we were talking with him, I, I feel like if I had to go back and pick a job in aviation, I think I would pick dispatcher. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the, the question and all the things I would do differently, but that sounds like a fun job. Stressful at a different degree than air traffic control, but similar but different level of stress, similar but I different. guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's still hundreds or thousands of people relying on whatever you're doing, not in an air traffic control tower or at an air traffic center, but in an airline headquarter. Anything you do will impact any one of possibly dozens of flights on a particular day. And that's just interesting. Yeah. I think it's a fascinating job. So the first half of the show was regulatory stuff. Then we talked about dispatching. And now we're going to talk about- The other stuff. Commercial stuff. The other stuff. Commercial stuff. We've got routes, aircraft orders, aircraft utilization, and some good stuff here and some some not so good stuff. First reported today, uh, we'll start, I guess start with the not so good stuff. First reported today by Danny Lee over at Bloomberg, Virgin Atlantic will pull out of Hong Kong entirely. And, and this, this coming a week after Hong Kong- announced that they would start opening up again and make it easier for international travel to take place. I wouldn't even say make it easier, make it practical or doable. Possible. Possible. Yes. Yes. Doable. So Virgin Atlantic announced that today saying that they were going to stop serving Hong Kong entirely. They were closing their offices and base there and they would be done with it. And which is interesting because it has the move has less to do with Hong Kong itself and more so to do with the fact that the route is it's just not economical given the closure of Russian airspace. Yeah. And at this rate, it really doesn't seem like that issue is gonna be less of an issue anytime soon. Yeah. I don't think that's gonna change anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Not an airline quite as impacted as Finair is, but still not great. And if this route just isn't practical like that, who can blame them for cutting it? Yeah, and to try and force things, I think is is almost even even worse because then you end up trying to route yourself around all these complexities, and then the flight just never works for the people that you're trying to to carry on the flights. So it, it'll it'll be interesting to see if and when they ever do return in the future. But it's probably going to be a while, a, a long while before they even consider going back. Also, cutting service are the pair of Nordic carriers, well, a pair of Norwegian carriers, really. On the long haul front, you've got Norse Atlantic pulling a Norwegian 2.0, basically. Not I was being told able to fill it would be different this time. Yes, we were all told it would be different, even though the airline is run by the same people, they run on the same routes, and they fly the same planes. We were told it would be different, but alas- It isn't. It isn't different. They are cutting flying over the winter by 31%. Previously, they had said Orlando to Oslo would be reduced at the middle of this month, New York and Berlin service, and now Los Angeles is also going away. So not great. Norse is down to six routes for the winter season. JFK to Berlin, JFK to Oslo, JFK to London Gatwick, Gatwick to Oslo, which is uh, my favorite route, Fort Lauderdale, Berlin, and Fort Lauderdale, Oslo. So, and the only, let's see, they've got daily routes between JFK and, and Gatwick, and then London Gatwick to Oslo. So, those are the only daily routes. Everything else is two or three times per week. So, not great. 
but not terribly unexpected. Entirely unexpected. Yeah, it's the other airline, Norwegian airline, is Flyer. They're the short haul seven three seven operator that has been struggling, but they're cutting a lot of their domestic flights within Norway. They're only keeping Oslo Bergen and Oslo Trondheim. They will be keeping a lot of their European kind of sun destinations. But smaller cities within Norway will not be served except for right around Christmas time. And the airline said that, you know, the there are a lot of all airlines are saying this. There are a lot of outside factors affecting oh, affecting yeah? the airline business at the moment. Wow. Go figure. And so they're cutting back. All right. Again, none of this unexpected. I, I wish it was not the case for Norse and Flyer, but past recent history was was not proving their case to be particularly strong, in the, especially in the climate we have today. No. So that's our our routes news. Moving on to good news is that Royal Jordanian has selected the A320neo for its fleet refresh, so good for them. More interesting, at least to me, is that Croatia Airlines will replace its short-haul fleet or its fleet with the A220 over the next couple of years moving to a uh, to an air baltic style all A220 fleet so that'll be great yeah and much like all air baltic they're converting over from smaller jet powered aircraft and one of the larger turboprop aircraft so in this case the A319 CO and the Dash 8 and kind of meeting right in the middle with the A220, which I just find to be interesting. Air Baltic and and Croatia seem to have some pretty uh, common threads with these fleet moves. So that's very interesting. Of course, it brings up both the the benefits of having a single fleet type, but also the complexities or the the risks where if, let's say, forbid that the A220s are grounded, that, that kind of grounds your entire airline. But I don't think they're really thinking about that. And this should be a really nice change for an airline that I really admittedly did not know much about at all. They've operated some really interesting aircraft uh, in the past. And and moving to the A220, I'm excited about. I haven't been to Croatia in a very long time, but I really want to go back because it's such it's such a fascinating and, and fantastic place. And, and I loved being there. So I would love to fly there on an A220. I think that would oh. be fun. This is a fun one because saying Lot is taking six 737 MAX is okay. That's boring. They already have a few. But they're going to take all six for this most recent order this month. You can't even buy a car that quickly. If you went to a car dealership and said, I want to get a a Toyota Camry this month, you'd, you'd probably be laughed out of the dealership and they would say, come back when you're serious. But here we are with a lot of Polish airlines going to ALC Airlines Corporation and say, we will take 6737 MAX 8s, please. And we would like them right away. And I'm sure ALC came back and said, would you like them painted or not? Because this is a really quick turnaround. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, are they going to just slap like a sticker on the side or or what? But yeah, six by the end of the month. So Good More for them. Planes. We we don't yeah. know where they're coming from. They are, of course, we can make a very safe assumption that these are whitetail aircraft, either destined for possibly a Russian airline that is sanctioned out of reality. Maybe it was one of the Chinese airlines that still can't take delivery of the Max. We we don't know, but six Maxes in October alone will more than double 
the fleet size that they already have operating today, which is five seven three max eight. So that's that's an ambitious growth right there. Let's let's double the fleet size. It'll be fine. Yeah, no big deal. When I think Lufthansa, I think St. Louis. You do? I mean, don't you? You do now because I just put this in their show notes like thirty seconds ago. But I saw this <laughs> tweeted out from uh, Ethan Clapper, and I couldn't. He quote tweeted it from STL Aviation News on Twitter that I, I couldn't not bring it up because I find this this just mind blowing that not only does St. Louis have a Lufthansa mainline flight to Frankfurt operating on a, a rather large A330, but we're all kind of stunned by their load factors, which is how full are these airplanes going out. I'm stunned that in June and July, they were 98% full, 92% in August, and in September, 91.2%. That's pretty stunning for a very thin route that I would assume would kind of you know, always have a few extra seats at least for some non-revs. But going out 98% full for an entire month is impressive for any route, let alone uh, St. Louis to Frankfurt. I mean, I I don't know. I Having flown this summer, I'm only a little surprised. I would expect like 85, 90, 91, but 98% mean that that plane went out nearly or completely full almost every day. And I think it's a daily flight. It's It's not quite daily. It's every other day or every third day, but still, that's impressive. So, hats off to whoever was behind developing and rolling out the St. Louis to Frankfurt. Yeah. Lufthansa Good route. job, Eric Development St. Louis. You did your math right, as long as you're actually turning a profit. Because as we all know, just because the plane is full doesn't mean anyone's making any money off it. Well, hopefully somebody's making money. Hopefully everyone's making money and everyone's happy and enjoying the flight. So, I want to close the show a lot differently today. My wife's grandmother passed away this week at the age of of 99. Wow. And she lived an incredible life. And, you know, it's it's sad, but it it wasn't unexpected. It wasn't shocking, but certainly sad nonetheless. And almost 10 years ago, for her 90th birthday, the whole family flew out to Boston. And, And basically, she took us on a tour of where she grew up in Boston and told us a bunch of stories about about her her life beginning in you know the late 1920s Boston and and she told us one story about volunteering during World War II and there's always an aviation angle as John Ostrow says and and this is the one and I just I, I think it's a fascinating story so I want to play that now the first Army headquarters was here and I would volunteer on Saturday night I'd go downtown and I'd work at their air, air control they had no radar we used to track the planes for the New England. And it would be a one big room with a map, all of New England. Take your shoes off, you climb up on this map. They give you earphones, they give you a dummy. And as the plane came in, it was a P-38, you'd put a little flag and say P-38. Then you put, it was going southeast, you put another thing. You put it down on the ground, the tracker, the earphone, I would tell you where the plane was moving. And you moved the, the little dummy. Wow. And that's how they tracked the airplanes before radar. And I think that anybody who has, you know, grandparents or parents who were kind of not not necessarily fighting in the war, but were serving in, in different ways, probably has uh, similar stories about, you know, bomb shelter captains and things like that. 
But if anyone has any other stories about family members who were doing some of these kind of early air traffic control things, I, I just think it's so fascinating that that as a as a young woman, she was walking all over a map, moving little flags that you know as squadrons of P-38s flew up and down the the East Coast. I mean, it's just kind of a, a thing to think back. Like, of course, there there was – I mean, radar was in its infancy. You had to do it somehow. So they just – they phoned home. I always kind of felt like you saw that as almost like hyperbole in movies where like there'd be a general in the middle of a giant room-sized map on the floor pushing little models of airplanes around. And yeah, I, that, that does make sense and, that, and that's how they actually did it, doesn't it? I guess one of the most famous ones would be the Indiana Jones scene. Yes, where he, he sneaks into the, the the castle. But yeah, no, I, I just thought it was, it was fascinating that um, that she, you know, that, like go volunteer and, and move move planes around. So I thought that was really cool. And she was a very very interesting woman throughout her life, and got up to all sorts of things in a similar vein. But that was the aviation one. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was nice. If anybody has any other stories about that, by all means, podcast at fr24.com. We would love to share some more of those. Either email us with the stories or email us a, a voice memo so that we can put it on the show and, and learn about some of the other really cool stories that are out there. This has been episode 184 of Avtalk. Jason, we started the show saying that it would be in the top 100. I'm going to go out on a limb and say top 50. I was going to say top 50 as well. Yep. The All rest right. of it was pretty mundane, but the interview and that last bit at the end really, really put it over the top. So we're working our way up. Let's see. Episode 184 and we are done. I am Ian Pechnik and I am here as always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.